So the motivation for tonight will be from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Joyous effort is an attitude that takes delight in virtue. Without it, actualizing our spiritual aspirations is impossible. But with joyous effort, we happily practice the path for our own and others' welfare without discouragement or exhaustion. With indefatigable effort, we will not give up when we undertake to fulfill the collections of merit and wisdom and liberate all sentient beings from samsara. Thus, joyous effort is said to be the source of all auspicious attainments. Sometimes we want to develop a certain skill or to help others, but our work does not turn out as we wished and we feel discouraged. This happens to me too. But when I examine my motivation, my confidence returns. I begin with a sincere desire to benefit. Regardless of what others may say, knowing that my motivation was genuine gives me courage and inner strength. Even though I may not be outwardly successful, I still feel satisfied. On the other hand, if my motivation is not sincere, then even if others praise me and I become famous, discomfort and self-doubt plague me. It is important to counteract the laziness of discouragement. Do this by reflecting on the fact that you have the potential for liberation and full awakening. Reflect on the marvelous situation of freedom and fortune that you have with your precious human life. Recall that the Buddha was once a limited sentient being like you, and through his diligent practice, he attained full awakening. Initially, our ability to practice is quite weak. As we practice repeatedly, our capacity increases. When our capacity becomes strong, we will look back and see that what initially seemed almost impossible has now become possible, and that we have accomplished what we did not think we could do. Our inner capabilities have grown because we made effort. Four forces counteract the laziness inhibiting joyous effort. Thinking of the benefits of joyous effort and the faults of laziness, we generate interest in cultivating joyous effort and abandon laziness. With stability, we continue whatever virtuous activities we begin, committing to do them only after examining whether we have the time and ability to complete these projects. With joy, we constantly and continuously act in beneficial ways. With relinquishment, we rest our body and mind when needed and later enthusiastically resume our virtuous activities. Bodhisattvas cultivate three types of confidence, enabling them to maintain their joy of effort. With confidence in action, they are prepared to act alone without others' help. With confidence in their capacity to work for others, they engage in beneficial activities without self-doubt or hesitation. With confidence to oppose afflictions, they are determined to prevent and counteract afflictions. Bodhisattvas reflect have I accumulated the collections today? What have I done to benefit sentient beings today? In this way, they remember their heartfelt spiritual aspiration and encourage themselves to act upon it. Bodhisattvas willingly take upon themselves the suffering of all beings and rejoice in their merit and virtues. They frequently recall the Buddha's great qualities and perform all actions motivated by bodhicitta. Whatever happiness they experience, they aspire for all beings to experience it as well. In this way, day by day, they accumulate the requisites for awakening.
Let's all follow this path of the Bodhisattvas, in joyous effort, and continue to motivate ourselves and proceed along the path. Now we continue in the review. Venerable Children went over three different topics, and they were the eight worldly concerns, the uh, six benefits of thinking about death, the six benef um, dis disadvantages of not thinking about death, and the ten innermost jewels of the Kadapa tradition. Since there was an awful lot of information there, I'm going to start with the ten innermost jewels of the Kadapa tradition. Okay? So these are the Venerable Chobrin's words, and we'll go by what she said, and we'll also be using the three principal aspects of the path by Geshe Sonu Menchen, edited and translated by Ruth Sonu. Okay, so. When you hear them, they sound very extreme, but it is helpful to meditate on them because they sound so extreme. In another way, just taking the time and thinking in this way and trying to train our mind in this way really makes the mind settle down and really dispels the dissatisfaction and the complaining mind. This is a very radical way to think where even just trying to think in this way steers our mind in the right direction. It's having a kind of intensity to just go through no matter what comes up. Whatever the situation is, you meet it head on. You practice as best as you can. You don't give up. You just really stick to your practice. And she said, and she emphasizes, trying to imagine what it would be like to feel the way these ten feelings are described really transforms the mind. So these are the ten innermost jewels of the Kadamba tradition. They're broken down into three groups. The first are the four trusting acceptances, the three and the three Vajra convictions, also called the three abandonments, and then there are three mature attitudes. So what's the first of the four trusting acceptances? You'd be happy to die. <laughs> well, that's one of them. The third one. As our innermost outlook on life, be willing to accept the Dharma with total trust. That is the first one. She said, reflect that we have this precious human life. Death is certain. The time of death is uncertain. At death time, body, family, possessions, None of those things help. Dharma is the only thing that will help us at the time of death, so it's the only thing that makes sense to look at during our life. You think like this. You follow that step by step, and then as our innermost outlook on life, be willing to accept the Dharma with total trust. Really making the Dharma the cornerstone of our life. Not just the worldly life and the Dharma. Make it 50-50. The Kadampa masters say 50-50, not going to work. That's quite extreme. But, she said, it was really true. If you can really devote your whole life to the Dharma and really trust the Dharma, then you'll get some real practice done. If we're trying to bargain, it's not going to work. Now we're going to find out what Geshe Sona Minchin says about it. The Kadamba Masters advised us to cultivate ten jewel-like attitudes. The first four of these attitudes concern four kinds of entrustment. The first is the innermost attitude of entrusting yourself completely to the teachings. 
To develop this attitude, consider the preciousness of your human life, the rarity of life like this, and how meaningful it is in terms of your potential. How brief life is. You have no idea when you will die. It can happen at any moment and at any time. Neither your possessions, friends, nor even your body can help or save you. Nothing but the teaching is of any use then. Seen from this perspective, accumulating wealth and property and trying to surround yourself with the right friends or supporters is quite meaningless, since you can take none of these with you when you go. In trying to fulfill such desires, you perform many misdeeds whose consequences must be experienced in the future. You entrust yourself to the teachings by putting them at your heart and everything you think and do, by constantly trying to be positive and kind-hearted, and by expressing this in action. That's the first of the innermost jewels. Does anybody know what the second one is? Being willing to accept for the Dharma even to be a beggar. That's right. As our innermost attitude towards the Dharma, being willing to accept with total trust even to become a beggar. And Westerners are not really keen on becoming beggars. We want to practice the Dharma like normal people, whatever that means, and in comfort. Here in these innermost jewels, it isn't saying that we have to outwardly live this way. It's saying to have the mindset and the conviction and trust in the Dharma that we would be willing to live like that if that's what we had to do in order to practice the Dharma. How do we get our mind to think like that? To think that it is more important to work for the long-term benefit than for the short-term things. Generating bodhicitta, generating renunciation are much more important than seeking the happiness of this life. When we meditate like this, if we can go deep into our meditation, then it conquers the fear we have, not have, we have of not having the essentials for practice. We can want to practice, but sometimes our mind gets really afraid. We're trying to work with the mind that has become so attached and can become anxious and fearful. And by cultivating these kinds of thoughts and really seeing the importance of the Dharma, so much so that the Dharma is much more important than a comfortable bed and a roof over our head. And if it came to that, then yes, we're happy to give up those things in order to have our freedom to practice. So thinking like this helps us to break the anxiety and the attachment. And Geshe Sonam Rincham says, the second of these jewel-like attitudes is to entrust yourself to poverty in your practice of the teachings. You do not need to live a life of poverty, but if necessary, you should be ready to do so by overcoming attachment to pleasurable sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and tactile sensations. This will bring you contentment. How can you hope to reconcile an unquenchable thirst for the best of these things, which consumes your attention and energy with true practice? Perhaps you fear that by putting the teachings at the center of your life, you will one day lack even the most basic amenities and become so poor that you will be forced to beg. But if you entrust yourself to poverty and summon up courage to devote all your energy to practicing the teachings, come what may, paradoxically, you will never lack what you need. The Buddha himself predicted that those of his followers whose practice with dedication would never die of starvation. There is a saying that if the meditator doesn't roll down the mountain, the food will roll up. <laughs> the Kadampa master Geshe Bongyangyal reformed. Oh, before the Kadampa master Geshe Bongyangyal reformed, 
He owned so many fields in Penpo that 40 bags of barley seed were needed at sowing time. He robbed by day and thieved by night, but never had enough to eat. Yet when he began to practice the Buddha's teachings, he had more than enough. He said, before my mouth couldn't find food, but now the food can't find my mouth. So that's the second one. And the third one, Stephen? As our innermost attitude towards bec becoming a better beggar, being willing to accept with total trust, even having to die. So look at the fear and anxiety that there is there. Even if you try to go do long retreats, we can't do it because we are so afraid that we're running down to town all the time to get ourselves some food because we're afraid of what we're going to do if we starve. And I imagine she's ta not talking about the people who live at this abbey. <laughs> How do we get to that innermost thought of becoming a beggar, being willing to die, if that's what it entails? If we're afraid of starving, remember that we have never given up our life for the Dharma. We've given up our life in previous lives for all sorts of stupid things, out of pride, arrogance, etc., etc. They say it's better to die having the Dharma than being surrounded by tons of wealth. If we die with the Dharma, if we can control our mind at the time of death and go through death, absorption into the clear light, we can come out in the Sambhokakaya. But if you die surrounded by wealth, then you are afraid of what is going to happen to that wealth. Even though it seems extreme, the more we can train our mind, the more we can think sets us very clearly on the path and cuts off a lot of worry and so on and so on and so forth. You may worry about the possibility that if you put nothing away for a rainy day and are reduced to penury, you might even die of starvation. Reflect on the fact that you have died countless times in the past, but never once for the sake of the teachings. Everyone, whether rich or poor, must die eventually. So even if you were to die, this time it would be for a worthwhile reason. People create many harmful actions for the sake of wealth, and it is better to die poor without having done such thing. The third jewel-like attitude is to entrust yourself, even to death, from hunger and cold with the resolve never to stop practicing. And now the last one. They're willing to not only die, but die alone and friendless. As our innermost attitude towards death, being willing to accept with total trust, even having to die friendless and alone in an empty cave. So she said, each one of these is becoming more in depth. First, you've got to trust the Dharma wholeheartedly. Then you trust even if it means becoming a beggar. Then you trust even if you have to die. Then even if you have to die alone in poverty. We're not sure we're going to live to old age. If we practice the Dharma, then whenever we die, it's okay. If we don't practice the Dharma, we may or may not live to old age. Even if we do, it's not going to be happy, a happy old age. And it's not going to be a happy death. If we practice well, we won't mind dying alone. If we don't practice, even if the whole world is surrounding us, when we die, there is absolutely nothing they can do to help us. If we haven't practiced, it's not like anybody is going to be able to come in and all of a sudden make us realize emptiness on our deathbed when we haven't thought about it before. When we die, not, when we die not to worry about how people treat our body afterwards. 
Now you might be anxious about who will look after you when you grow old and who will dispose of your body in the proper way when you die. Such worries reveal that you are still ensnared by worldly concerns. You may live to be old, but it is not at all certain. Shantideva says, go to the cremation ground and think, those are the bones in my body, both have the nature to disintegrate, and so one day they will be alike. Courageously entrust yourself to an empty cave, thinking even if for the sake of your practice, you have to die alone like a dog far away from everyone in a desolate place. You will not be afraid or distressed. This is the fourth jewel-like attitude. The Buddhist life teaches us about the four attitudes of entrustment. Leaving behind the luxury of his father's palace, he adopted the simple life of an itinerant ascetic and devoted himself wholly to practice. He lived as a mendicant with no fear of poverty and understood, undertook extreme austere practices for nearly six years by the river Naranjana, ready to even to face death in a desolate place far from any inhabitation. This shows us the importance of complete trust and dedication. Now we're going to read a little poem from Milarepa. Without loved ones to know my happiness, nor enemies to know my suffering, if I could die in this mountain retreat, a yogi's wish would be fulfilled. Without friends to know I'm growing old, nor my sister to know when I'm sick, if I could die in this mountain retreat, a yogi's wish would be fulfilled. Without people knowing when I am dead, my rotting body unseen by birds, if I could die in this mountain retreat, a yogi's wish would be fulfilled. Just flies to suck my flesh and bones, and worms to eat my veins and sinews, if I could die in this mountain retreat, a yogi's wish would be fulfilled. No human traces at my door, and inside no trace of blood. If I could die in this mountain retreat, a yogi's wish would be fulfilled. Without any people around my corpse, and none to weep when I'm dead, if I could die in this mountain retreat, a yogi's wish would be fulfilled. With none to ask where I have gone, and no certainty that he went there, if I could die in this mountain retreat, a yogi's wish would be fulfilled. May this beggar's last prayer at death, made in a cave in a desolate place, be for the good of living beings, and if it be my wish, is fulfilled. Such other dedication to practice of the teaching is the road many great masters of India and Tibet have taken. Follow in their footsteps and avoid the byways on which it is easy to get lost. So. Venerable Children, it says, it's good when you meditate on them to really go slow and try and follow the path and see if your mind can get there, even if you can't imagine what it would feel like. We've got there. Okay. So those are the four entrustments. Next are what? The, the, the three Vajra convictions, also known as? The three abandonments. So what's the first one? To go ahead without consideration for what others think. Abandon the influence of friends and relatives who discourage us from practice. Abandon attachment to reputation. Just have the mindset on transforming the mind, on attaining realizations. What are you abandoning with this first one? The influence of friends and relatives who discourage us from practice. Yes, we get more from Geshe Zonam Rinchen. 
Three adamantine resolutions follow the four kinds of entrustments in the list of the ten jewel-like attitudes held dear by the Kadampa masters. The first consists of being mutably invulnerable to objections. Your parents and other loved ones will worry over what might happen to you if you give up all normal concerns and devote yourself entirely to the teachings. How will you manage, they'll say tearfully, and you will feel guilty at causing them so much sadness and anxiety. <laughs> Let nothing they say deflect you from your purpose and hold firmly to, the, to your resolution. The Buddha left his parents, his wife, and his companions at court to live in a way that he hoped would ultimately make him of greater use to them. Atisha, too, gave up a royal life, and although his father could not bear the prospect of separation, Atisha, Atisha reassured him that by enduring this parting, they would never be separated in future lives. Isn't that nice? Okay, so that's the first one. What's the second one? To keep the constant company of the wisdom of our commitments. Venerable Chosen says, be completely devoted to keeping whatever precepts or commitments we took, to really treasure those and center our life on keeping those commitments. Here what we abandon is to abandon thinking about what others think of us because we practice and because we think that what they want us to do is important. Really guard our practice and unify our lives and really keep our commitments in all situations. She said, the second adamantine resolution is to maintain an immutable lack of embarrassment. When you adopt such an unconventional lifestyle, others may deride you and say that you are no better than a beggar. Whether they call you a god or a devil, remain resolutely unembarrassed and untouched by their derision. Trying to live in accordance with your relatives' wishes is frequently a hindrance to pure practice. You can reject their values without rejecting them or giving up your love and compassion for them. The Buddha's secret departure from the royal palace, which caused his father grief, was not motivated by a lack of filial affection, but by his wish to gain spiritual insights. That's important. I think, yes. Why? Why do you think it's important? Well, it's just an important distinction because, you know, the family's interpretation can be that it is a lack of filial affection. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's all about me and mm-hmm. leaving me and I'm grieving the future that we'll never have and blah, blah, blah. But to emphasize in yourself that it's not, you know, it's easy to get hooked that way. Mm-hmm. But to emphasize in yourself that no, it's about realizing spiritual aspirations, which the family may or may not have the inclination toward. Mm-hmm. So it's just important to hold that in mind, isn't it? Okay. I like okay, and the last one is to carry on continuously without getting caught up in useless concerns. What we abandon here is attachment to the pleasures of this life because we can set up an incredibly good Dharma situation and then we can't really live in it because we're so attached to other things. <laughs> okay, Shisonam says the third adamantine resolution is to consort with immutable wisdom. Having committed yourself to certain practices, be steadfast and never transgress the promises you have made. Let go of everything that could tempt you to do so and devote yourself entirely and single-mindedly to the accomplishment of your aims. For six years, the Buddha did not waver from his practice. Yes, okay. Say that again, the first it said, devote yourself... 
Oh, consort with, consort with immutable the, wisdom. The next, the next Having committed yourself to certain practices, to be steadfast and never transgress the promises you have made. Devote yourself. Let, uh, let go of everything that could tempt you to do so and devote yourself entirely and single-mindedly to the accomplishments of your aims. Venerable Children said, there is nothing wrong with having friends and relatives and wealth. We have to have the courage to give them up if they're creating, causing us to create negative karma or if they're drawing us away from our Dharma practice. Okay, and those are the three abandonments, also known as the three Vajra convictions. And the last three of the, of the ten innermost jewels of the Kandampa tradition are the three mature attitudes. Venerable called them the three mature attitudes towards being expelled, finding, and attaining. So the first one, being willing to be expelled from the ranks of normal people because we don't share their limited values. <laughs> I knew there was something about us. Being willing to be expelled from your social circle, all your colleagues at work, all your Dharma friends, your family, because you have values that don't agree with the ones that they have. Uh, use the examples of like believing in future lives and uh, func the functioning of laws of cause and effect. So you're willing to live by your beliefs and stand by those values no matter what. Geshe Sonam says, Geshe Sonam Rinchen says, there will be three results from behaving in a way which seems to show our outrageous disregard for conventional values. <laughs> Outrageous disregard. You place yourself outside the accepted norms of society and others, whatever their social standing, will consider you insane because you are uninterested in the very things they consider of overriding importance and to which they devote their time and energy. They will shun you because they consider your conduct a challenge to their way of life and so you will find yourself expelled from human society. The Buddha left the society of the court in which he had lived and set out alone to wander in uninhabited places. Great masters like Atisha, Shantideva, and others also had the courage to leave the comforts of a royal life behind. If we claim to be their follow if we claim to be their followers, even though we may not ourselves be able to emulate their example, we can at least admire their actions and consider their implications. Any questions? You bet. Okay, so the second mature attitude. Being willing to be regarded among the ranks of dogs. Even if we receive poor, poor food, we still courageously take on hardships. Miller-Upper said, in degenerate times, hypocrites are honored. Spiritual shysters are more in demand than gold and jewels, while sincere, humble practitioners are tossed aside like pebbles. So we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to be amongst the ranks of dogs? Or do we want to look like an important Dharma practitioner who struts around with a bunch of groupies following us? Which would you do? On the fringes of society, as a homeless outcast, you will find yourself in the company of dogs. Like a stray dog, you will have to bear whatever hardships you face in obtaining food and shelter without complaint and without allowing it to shake your decision to practice. 
When the Buddha sat meditating on the banks of Naranjana, he looked so emaciated that even the cowherds who occasionally passed that way mocked him, but nothing could deter him. You look puzzled. No, it's an interesting question. Which would you choose? Yeah, it is an interesting, and everybody has to answer that in their yeah. own way. Yeah. Okay, and the last one is, being completely involved in attaining the divine rank of a Buddha, that's the last one, being completely involved in attaining the divine rank of a Buddha. This really shifts our mind away from the happiness of this life. Turning a mind away from what other people think about us and just relying upon the inner happiness that comes from practicing the Dharma and gaining the realizations and joining the ranks of a Buddha. And Venerable Chodin said about all of these that all of these take a lot of inner strength to do. The last one I guess she's going to mention. As a result of such resolute practice, you will attain the divine state of enlightenment, just as the Buddha did, which made him an object of homage by gods and humans. So these are the jewels of the Kadampa tradition. Contemplating them will enrich you and make you courageous. They express a complete turning away from all worldly concerns. If you adopt them, you will become fearless and your wishes will be fulfilled. Many great Namari practitioners did not embrace a life of poverty or give away all the possessions, yet they practiced purely because they relinquished worldly concerns. Gaining true insight into the preciousness of your human life and its transient nature makes your practice so pure that you feel no craving, even if every luxury imaginable could be yours. Worldly wealth and status will have as little appeal to you as a plate full of food that has just turned your stomach. Though a certain degree of understanding can arise from listening to the teachings, insights will only be stable if they result from deep personal reflection and experience. The difference is like driving a dagger into mud, where it won't be rain firm, and driving it into solid earth. Your insights must enter and become deeply embedded in your heart. Those are the ten innermost jewels of the Kadampa tradition. So, any comments, questions? Don't ask questions. I don't know answers. Go well, ahead. There are a whole lot about um, attachment to reputation, <coughs> attachment to praise, the of criticism. I mean, the inwardly concerns. They're all about mm-hmm. comfort. Are we, comfort. Are we willing to go, you know, to give that all practice? And that's a hard question. I mean, everybody's got their limits on what that would be. Just a comment. Yes. So let's... Generating concern for future lives is what Venable, all of these three teachings was about. So here's what she says about it. We always hear Buddhism teaches you to be in the here and now. Take out all thoughts of hope and fears of the future. Why all these aspirations and goals? Shouldn't we be enjoying the present moment? The present moment is this long. Yeah, so we shouldn't be attached to the present moment, is what she meant. It prevents us from paying attention to our own experience or paying attention to the Dharma. Isn't it usually attachment, anger, and confusion with jealousy and pride mixed in? Usually it's some afflictive state of mind, and then we're wrapped up in the story, we're thinking about having to do with that infliction. I want to be in the present moment with my girlfriend lying on the beach in the sunlight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, you'd be in the present moment, yeah, okay. 
That doesn't make sense. We develop a whole scene, but we're totally in Never Never Land. We're completely in our own fantasy world. Attachment takes us out of what our experience is, and so do anger and resentment. We're holding on to things from the past. Anxiety takes us out of our experience in the here and now and makes anxious stories about the future. The idea is that when you care about your future life, when you want to get your ethical conduct clean and precise, because your ethical conduct is the chief determining factor in what kind of rebirth you're going to have. In order to get our ethical conduct in some sort of cleaned up way so that we're not protect, perpetually acting like a jerk and don't do that, we have to subdue our confusion, attachment, and anger. Caring about our future lives, it helps us overcome our attachment, anger, and ignorance in this life. Right now, because we have to be free of those things in order to keep good ethical conduct, in order to have a good rebirth. It's interesting that inspiring for a good life actually helps you to be in the present moment more clearly. But then we also have to understand how to be in the present moment. It doesn't just mean put every sense pleasure we have being relish here and now. How does putting your mind on those things get you any closer to liberation and awakening? It doesn't. Especially if you're just enjoying those things with some kind of attachment in mind. If you're in the present moment using our wisdom, being aware of our impermanence, being aware of the nature of dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of each moment, being aware of causal dependence. You need to realize how each moment is a result of the previous things and how it gives rise to future things. If we're aware each moment of the kindness of living beings, then we want to generate the wish to benefit them. Those ways of being in the present moment get you closer to liberation and enlightenment. But just enjoying what you, can ha you happen to be experienced at the moment doesn't create virtue. And this is a standard that we have to use. Does it create virtue? Or is it just paying attention to something that's nice and transient? In other words, everything. One of the meditations that help us overcome the mental chatter in our minds that take us away from being in the Dharma, in the present moment, is a meditation on impermanence and death. It's so important that they say, if you don't remember impermanence and death in the morning, afternoon, and the evening, that you have wasted the day. When you think about death and impermanence, it becomes clear that it is very important not to waste our time, especially getting mad at people or in attachment, or jealousy, or pride, or whatever you want to go. You can spend a lot of time on these things and not come to anything of any value. But when we think about death and impermanence, we realize that we don't have a long time to live. And then at the end of our life, our whole life appears in front of us. And it seems to be about as long as a snap of a finger or a flash of lightning. So when we really think about death, that helps us to think, how can I make my life meaningful? because I don't have forever to live, and it's going very quickly, and I can't go back and rerun anything. If you waste your time, that time is gone, and there's no way to go back and say, I wish I had not spent all that time watching television, reading magazines, or whatever it is, because that time is gone. The karma, and the karma is already created. 
This meditation on death and impermanence is quite helpful for that and for getting our priorities clear. What is really important? At the time that you die and you don't know when that's going to be, how will you want to look back on your life? She said it always comes back to the mind, having a good motivation. Whatever action we are doing, we always think it's the action that's so important when it's really the mind state. You can pick anything that you are doing that is virtuous, but without a good motivation, it doesn't help you become awakened. So we're going to go... The de- uh, she started talking about the meditation on death and impermanence. There was, it starts out with six disadvantages of not remembering death, and then six advantages of remembering death, and the nine-point death meditation, which I will not be going into, and then imagining your death, which I also will not be going into. So the disadvantages of not remembering death. The whole thing hinges on our mind being focused on the happiness of this life. And the mind focused on the happiness of this life is just looking out for my happiness now. And it will do whatever we possibly can to get it without concern that the actions that we do are harmful to others. That the actions are against our precepts, the actions are destructive ones. But the attachment to to the happiness of this life is strong. And that we are, we are like the donkeys that have the ring in your nose and you're just following the attachment wherever it goes. And that's what keeps us being constantly reborn in samsara. So there were six disadvantages of not remembering death. And the first one is? We just don't practice enough. We don't practice intensely. We don't practice purely. We just don't, we don't we feel like it. We don't remember to practice the dharma. We get really busy with all of our worldly activities. The Dharma gets put at the bottom of our list and we never get around to it. But if we look at death, then we see the importance of Dharma and we create virtue and abandon non-virtue. So what else, what other things do we do that keeps us busy? Not, not necessarily here at the Abbey. Or even here at the Abbey. What do we do at the Abbey that keeps us not doing the Dharma? Are really concerned? Eight worldly concerns, yeah. Talking about food. <laughs> <laughs> or the weather. Yeah, okay. Let's see what Geshe Sopa said about it. None of your religious practices will be very strong or constant as long as you lack recognition of the fact that life is impermanent and goes quickly. This is a truth we conceal from ourselves. We pack it away and forget it then all our efforts go towards achieving the goal we, goals we set for this life. But no matter how hard we try to achieve great things, life will not remain. Every goal you set and each one, of you, accomplish, each, each one you accomplish only brings you closer to death. So the first disadvantage of failing to recollect death is that it becomes a pathway through which attitudes and actions that harm your religious practice can enter. So the second one. Even if we are mindful of the Dharma, we don't really practice it now. We procrastinate. Okay, everybody admits that death will definitely come. That is a certainty. But when will it come? Most people have a deep-seated feeling that death is not truly at hand, at least not anytime soon. With this attitude, you will not have the willpower to overcome the laziness of procrastination. 
You may understand that you should use your life meaningfully to prepare for future lives, but you will come up against the thought, I will take it slowly and practice a little later. Not now. Next month. Maybe in the next few years. When I get old. Procrastination prevents a serious, determined effort to practice the Dharma. Under its power, you pass your time sleeping or lost in all kinds of distractions, like eating, drinking, and chatting away to no purpose. You will never be prepared when death does come. So, that's the second one. And the third one. Even if we don't practice, even if we practice, excuse me, we don't do so purely because our practice gets mixed up with the eight worldly concerns. You studied something and you become arrogant about it, etc., etc., etc. And Geshe Zopa says, however, if these worldly concerns are your primary focus, then even when you engage in virtuous behavior, meditate, perform religious rituals, you will really be thinking about temporary goals. In the back of your mind, you will be thinking, this may bring me wealth, fame, or professional prestige. You may examine the meaning of what you have studied just for the sake of acquiring knowledge. You may meditate just to achieve contentment or some kind of power. When done only for the temporal happiness of this life, these actions are just like eating sweet food for the sake of deriving transitory pleasure. With that kind of motivation, whatever virtuous activity you try to do has neither power nor great meaning. The fourth one. If we don't remember death, we will lose determination to practice earnestly at all times. We may practice, but our practice won't have the intensity, it won't have strength, it won't have consistency. We just do everything by rote on automatic. There's no hurry to practice the Dharma at all. Geshe Sopa says, you will not succeed if you recollect impermanence only once in a while. You may be capable of doing some degree of pure practice, but if you fail to remember death constantly, you will see that event as far, far away, and most of your energy will go towards living now. You will not imbibe or practice with any intensity or strength because you will be of two minds. On the one hand, you will be concerned with the goals of this life, and on the other, you will be trying to prepare for future lives. Sometimes you will see that it is important to do something about your future lives. At other times you will feel it is important to do things just for this life. You end up with neither one of them being very strong. Your motivation and practice will be ambivalent. Okay, so the fifth one. We create a lot of destructive actions. We will create a lot of destructive actions which cause not only our own unfortunate rebirth, but obscure our minds and prevent us from gaining liberation. That's bad juju. Another disadvantage of not recollecting death is that you make yourself an unworthy person. Because you are deceived by the expectation that this life will last for a long time, you maintain a fierce attachment to wealth, fame, honor, and all other worldly concerns. So even when you are engaged in what appears to be a religious plaque, practice, in your heart there is a fundamental selfishness. This attitude breeds the desire to destroy whatever gets in the way of satisfying your selfish needs and desires. Feelings of rage or jealousy are directed towards anyone or anything that you suspect may be an obstacle to you. All kinds of troubles flow from these feelings motivated by these emotions. You act against those whom you are, believe are preventing you from reaching your worldly goals. This chain of causation can lead to the worst kinds of th things in this world. 
fighting, the horrors of war, and even killing your own parents or children. In other words, out of these, those mental afflictions come all destructive actions. The ten negative actions of body, speech, and mind, the automatic transgressions, and other similar evil deeds. All these destructive actions drawing you towards the fearful sufferings of the lower rebirths will increase day by day until they overwhelm you. Like I said, very bad future. And the sixth disadvantage of not reflecting on death will die with regret. We'll waste all our time, we won't purify, we won't accumulate merit, and we won't listen to teachings. At the time of death, all of the worldly things just vanishes, and we have nothing to take with us except the seeds of the destructive actions that we have done. And Geshe Zopa says, The last disadvantage of not recollecting death and impermanence is that you will feel great regret at, at the time of death. A consequence of living exclusively for selfish enjoyment is that when you are dying, you will look back and see that all the struggles, challenges, and unpleasantness you faced were for the sake of temporary goals. Although you may have brought, although they may have brought you a comfortable life, at the time of death, you realize that none of it had any benefit for the future. You will feel great remorse if you did nothing to benefit your next life and instead created all kinds of non-virtuous karma. At the time of death, it is too late. There is nothing you can do. This miserable kind of death comes from a lack of preparation for the future due to not recollecting your own impermanence. And Venerable Children says, if we really think deeply about these disadvantages of not remembering death, then it really helps to overcome our laziness of remembering it. So let's all think deep, deeply about that. So those were the disadvantages of not remembering. So now we have six benefits of remembering death. And the first one is, we'll act meaningfully. We'll have inner discipline so nobody needs to force us to practice and we won't waste time. Geshe Sopa says, when you see all worldly goals as hollow, your strong ambition to obtain all your usual objects of attachment is transformed into the intent to use your life to seek the highest religious spiritual goals. Determination to consistently engage in virtuous actions helpful to your future naturally comes from a constant awareness of death. You turn away from harmful actions. Without that constant awareness, you may try hard for a short time, perhaps for a few hours or a few days. You may practice so intensely that you cannot continue for a long time. Or you may practice very regularly but without any force of intensity behind it. But led by the recollection of death, your effort will be both constant and strong. Through the remainder of your life, you will accumulate, accumulate virtuous karma. Okay, so the second benefit. All of our positive actions will be powerful and will be effective because we're unattached to worldly things. So we won't act with ignorance, anger, and attachment regarding them. And we'll be able to focus and concentrate on what we're doing. If we remember death, we will naturally be more generous. We'll give things away because we'll know that we can't take them with us, and better to give them away and create merit. We also won't harm others. And awareness of death makes us always monitor, always monitor, what am I doing and what kind of results will it bring in the future? That mind that is always thinking about the results of our actions really make us very mindful of our precepts and our ethical values and it really increases our introspective awareness so that we're aware of what we're doing. 
If we remember death, they say it makes Dharma practice much easier. Remembering death shouldn't make us depressed. It makes us ask, what's important in my life? And lets us stay steady on what's important without doubting that. Without caring about what other people think and just doing what we think is useful, meaningful and beneficial. Then at the time we die, we can feel happy. Yay! Geshe Zopa says, this practice is also praised for its great power. Like a hammer, it smashes the foundations of worldly activities. It crushes attachment to this life. All the harmful actions of body, speech, and mind are motivated by mental afflictions, hatred, jealousy, pride, and so forth. The mental afflictions arise in dependence upon the belief in the self, the desire to protect this life, and opposition to any interruption to happiness. The mental afflictions can no longer arise once you have an awareness of impermanence. They, too, are smashed with one blow of the hammer of recollecting death. This does not mean they were pulled out by the root, but they are subdued. How about that? Okay, so the third, fourth, third one is, remembering death is important at the beginning of our practice. It gets us going on the path. Seeing death makes you wonder what's going to happen at the time of death. And what's the meaning of my life? What can I take with me? And what can't I take with me? It really gets us on track. The Buddha started practicing when he saw a dead person in the market. Milarepa started practicing when he saw all the deaths that he had caused. So it's to help, that's how it helps us at the beginning. I guess Shizoba didn't have much to say about beginning, middle, and end. Okay, so we're going to leave it at that. Okay. So the fourth benefit of remembering death is remembering death is important at the middle of our practice. The Venerable Chosen says it helps us to persevere and not lose interest or give up. Does anybody want to expand on that? Just remember death throughout. So the fifth one is remembering death is important at the end of our practice. It keeps us focused on the beneficial goals. Well, I think for the for the middle one, you know, after you've been practicing for a few years, you've got you know some basic tools down. You've got a few things memorized. You, you know, things are really familiar, and so you can just kind of get get into rote. Things get dry. So the death uh, death really helps to kind of bring a little bit of life back into practice. There's an interesting phrase. I like the way you said that. Uh, it does. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see that. Because I think the biggest hardship when you've been practicing for a long time is that it's almost like it's too familiar. But if you remember death and you and you know that you are going to die, you don't know when. Just, yeah. It really makes you go deeper into what you're you're currently doing. It really just brings it more alive again. Mm-hmm. And did we do five? Remembering our death is important at the end of our practice. It keeps us focused on our beneficial goals. And so the last one is that the last benefit is that we will die happily and pleasantly. Instead of death being something that terrifies us, we will have prepared our mind for it, and when it comes, we will relax, we meditate, we let go. For high practitioners, dying becomes very happy, like going home. For middling practitioners, the mind is happy and there is no worry, no regret. 
For lower practitioners, remembering death makes it so that they aren't set or bothered at death. They don't get afraid. They are prepared. Okay, so are we all happy you know about death and meditation and the ten innermost jewels now? Ready to die happy. Ready to die happy. All right. Anything else? Oh, yes, absolutely. Just remember to remember death in the morning, in the evening, in the afternoon, in the beginning of your practice, in the middle of your practice, the end of your practice. When you're feeling good, when you're feeling bad. And not to worry about what our friends and relatives think. That's right. To really bring the Dharma as our best Or what we're going to have for lunch. Or what we're going to have for lunch. Practice purely as best as we can.
especially at Shravasti Abbey in the West. Flourish.